Hi there. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for all the love and support you have given us in recent times. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the podcast and give us a follow on our social media. This podcast is brought to you by The Retro Kit, an online store where you can buy all of your favourite shirts. From Zidane's famous black and white striped Juventus kit to Thierry Henry's invincible shirt, they have it all. You can check them out by visiting our Instagram page. And now it's time for the latest episode. Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Colazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. Today we're honoured to have a special guest whose journey in football has taken him from the fields of Australia to the bustling scene in Europe and now Saudi Arabia. Joining us is Matt Ross, a man whose passion for football led him on a unique pathway. Matt began his football journey as a referee before packing his bags and moving all across the world to pursue a career in coaching. From the humble beginnings of driving a bus to coaching on the grand stage of the Women's World Cup, Matt's voyage in football is nothing short of inspiring. In this episode, we delve into Matt's incredible experiences, exploring the challenges and the triumphs that have defined his journey, and we'll dive headfirst into the recent rise of football in Saudi Arabia. But before we begin, Jack, how are you, mate? Uh, very well. Looking forward to this. Uh, this will be an interesting one, so definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, no, for sure. It's a hot topic at the moment, the football in Saudi Arabia. So we'll get onto that topic. But yeah, really looking forward to delving into that and the insights and having Matt on. Um, but obviously, last week, I asked you the question. So now it is your turn to ask me the question and I'm ready for you. OK, so uh, on topic and also right now, it's the uh, the Asia Cup. So in the Premier League, there are uh, only six clubs that have players from the continent of Asia. Two of them a joint leading the way. So Japan and Republic of South Korea both have three players each playing in the Premier League. So a total of six players between the two. Can you name those six players? Three from Japan and three from South Korea. All right, so you've killed me a little bit. This is definitely going to be tough. I think like with all of our questions, right, there's going to be one or two names straight to your head. But all right, well, yeah, we'll come back at the end and uh, I'll have a little think as we go through that. Um, but yeah, good question on topic on theme at the moment with the Asian Cup. Um, and let's go for it. But uh, yeah, love to introduce Matt. Matt, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Stuart and Jack. It's a real pleasure to speak with you guys, and uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be a great episode. Um, I'm sure a lot of insights, especially for coaches that are listening into this. Um, but as a as a new guest onto the podcast, Jack's got five quick fire questions for you. Um, that we're going to have some fun with. Yeah, five quick ones. First of all, name? Matt Ross. Favourite team? Arsenal. Arsenal, okay, good. Uh, Favourite ever sporting memory? Uh, sporting memory? Uh, Australia, Iran. Uh, World Cup qualifier, um, 1997 in Melbourne. Uh, Australia 2-0 up, about to book their place for France 98. Guy comes on and rips the net. Uh, stoppage of about 15 minutes. Iran score two. Venables and Socceroos, we don't qualify for the World Cup. 
Venables come out for a couple of years, never lost a match, and we didn't get to the World Cup. And sitting in that audience with 100,000 other people was, it's still, I, we, no Australian can watch that back. It just rips our heart out every time. That's your favourite ever sport, remember? <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of pure emotion, and I mean that that whole roller coaster a football fan goes through. Because mm. I remember I was sitting next to my dad, and I said we were two 0 up and we were cruising. This was the Australians we had. We had everyone was in the Premier League: Schwartz, uh, Viduka, all these top names, mm. all these guys at the top of their game. And I turned to him and I, and I said, "Dad, we've got to book our tickets to France. We're going to go to the World Cup. Let's go." Next thing, bang, bang, 2-2, two, two, we're out, and we're just... Uh... So, yeah, it was, it was the epitome of everything a football fan goes through from uh, heaven to hell in the space of about 20 minutes. Yeah, the, up, the ups, ups and downs of football, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Favourite ever kit? Um, Arsenal, it was the first one I ever had as a kid. I think it was 88, 89, Arsenal, JVC. Hmm. I think the year they would have... Uh, Michael Thomas, the year they won it, yeah. Liverpool, 2-0. That was the first little kid I had as probably, I would have been 10, so I ran around in that one till I grew out of it. That was a nice, nice one. Had a, had a few Arsenal, uh, Arsenal nominations, Arsenal popular kits, for sure. Arsenal have always uh, yeah. had iconic kit. I think it, we always say yeah. it's the sponsor that makes the kit, and like you think about JVC of that kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, best player seen live? Um, Iniesta. I was really lucky. 2012, I got tickets to Copa del Rey, Madrid against Barca. And uh, this was the classic Pep against Mourinho, all those guys in their pomp. And the one I couldn't take my eyes off was Iniesta. Off the ball, could just find little pockets of space. No one could touch him. No one could mark him. If they got too tight, he'd, he'd just find a way. And some of the touches he had, I've watched the game back because I just walked away from that stadium just thinking this, this guy was on another level. So. That one's always stood out for me, Iniesta. It's funny you say that because last week we had Iniesta was the answer to to Lorenzo's question. And he just said pretty much word for word exactly what you just said. Oh, really? Yeah, because a player like him somewhat goes under the radar of the fame, right? Of like these Ronaldos and Messis. But wow, what a player he was. And like we said last week, like he just glides around and makes it look effortless. And when a player makes it look effortless, you almost sometimes... Like to a regular fan, maybe not appreciate it as much. But then, like yeah. to like a keen eye, you're like, nah, he's doing things that no player could even think of. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, that that sixth sense to see, he he could just feel he could just feel where he needed to be, and he just get over there, and that that he could just as soon as a defender would look away for half a second, he'd pop into a little half space on the turn and just rip rip teams apart. It was it was magical. Yeah. And the fact that, like, as coaches, we're still re- referencing him to, like, the younger players. Because, obviously, he's not – he's still playing to somewhat now, but we're still using him as, like, his IQ. And you try and teach players to be at least one step ahead. But for him, he was almost like the game just started and he's already at the 90-minute mark because he's that far <laughs> ahead of everyone. He, what a player yeah. he was. And just that team of yeah. Barcelona at that time with him and Xavi, it was just formidable, right? Nobody was breaking that. Yeah, no, it was it was a a once in a decade or you know. Yeah, that, I, that I wish I'd seen him play because it's one of those you want to see players that you appreciate and you're going to probably talk about in your coach when you talk to play like to your kids and whatnot. And it's you sometimes wish you could relive the memory of how they actually played rather than just relying on videos online and stuff like that because 
you, you can yeah. watch so much on a camera, but then when you're watching him live, you see everything else that not many people see. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, so, uh, this is the yeah. point where I always get jealous of the guests as well. Like being able to, I never saw Iniesta live, or we'll have like an answer like a Messi, or you know people like this, and I'm like, oh, I never got to see these players. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, Huddersfield being a Huddersfield Town. Town fan, you're not seeing many of these players. Yeah, I was watching Andy Booth and people like this. Although I did have a good Australian play, I got to see a, a lot, which was Aaron Moy, who I was a big fan. Aaron Moy, he was quality. Yeah, yeah. And he just retired. Player. Just retired, I think. Yeah, well, he was great at Huddersfield, and I also thought he was our best player. Uh, in the short period we were in the Premier League as well. Surprised he didn't, yeah. you know, have a good career in the Prem. Yeah, yeah, same. But yeah. Uh, yeah, Matt, again, appreciate you coming on, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to have heard your inspiring story about how you've come up. But I would love to obviously get it out <laughs> on this episode, all the way back to your Australian days, obviously being a referee, um, and like how you got into coaching. I'd love to hear more. Um, well, if we yeah. I mean, rewind back to 1992. Um, and like, like any young kid, I was heavily influenced by my father. So at that point, dad had been a, been a player, been a coach, and he'd gone into refereeing. So I was, I was 13 and my, I was never going to make it as a player. So it was just, I'd watched him referee a few games. It looked like fun. I just started refereeing and it became, by the time I was 15, 16, 17, I thought I can, I'd love to make a little career out of this and get to a World Cup or get a FIFA badge, that kind of thing. So my ambition was in refereeing and uh, it, it went away, it went quite nicely. I made it to the, what we'd call the A-League now, uh, the professional league in Australia as a linesman. And I had my sights set on the 2002 World Cup. And there was a few of us that had been not shortlisted, but identified as had potential to get to that level. And um, I really wanted to, to, I've always been a traveler and wanted to experience new things. So I said to the, the referees um, association, let me go to Scotland. Let me train with the Scottish referees. Let me learn from them. Let me get experience. They said, yeah, go. So I went in the winter break because they play in the summer in Australia. I went over there and uh, had a month, six weeks with the Scottish referees. Trained with them, did a few games, fourth official linesman in the Highland League. Great experience. Um, came back and all of a sudden I noticed the fixtures had come out and I wasn't getting any matches. So I said, well, what's going on? They said, oh, well, you, you weren't here during the season, so we thought you weren't committed. And I said, there's been a big miscommunication here. My local association sent me off to, to learn and um, learn from you know, the best in Scotland. So the next the next season came along and I wasn't nominated for the for the National League, and I got I basically just retired at twenty two from refereeing. So that that dream was sort of uh, hobbled very early on, and I was really I took a year out of football. I was I was devastated, and then I went back and played amateur for a while. Did my ACL at twenty five, and I really wanted to be in the game. Um, and hadn't really thought of coaching. I was a teacher and I just very slowly would, I was t uh, elementary school, primary school and just picked up the school team. We'd go and do tournaments, but I never really thought this is, this would be a career. This would be something that I could turn into a profession. Um, it wasn't until um, 2000, 2008 that I applied 
for the license in Singapore, um, C license for AFC. And it's very difficult to get on coaches, uh, coaching courses in Australia. So I figured I applied for Cambodia, Singapore, East Timor, Indonesia, all the FAs and uh, Singapore said, okay, we'll take you on a C license and really enjoyed the course and enjoyed learning because I'd, I'd, I'd played a referee, but never really, I had to learn coaching from first principles. I, when I played, it was train Tuesday, train Thursday, play Saturday, four, four, two long ball, have a few beers after the game. That, that was it. I'd never really been coached properly. So I was really fascinated by the process of coaching and how to set up a team and how to even build a training session and how to feedback to players. All these things was um, a lot of the skills transferable from, from teaching. But for me, it was the perfect job in the sense that I was taking those skills from teaching, but I was on a football pitch where I just loved to be. I was on the grass. Um, and it was during that C license that I, I was with a few players or current Singaporean internationals coaches coming through the ranks in Singapore where I realized, well, this, I, I'm no worse than these guys and these guys are living off, off football. And that's where the first little seed got planted. Uh, maybe this could be a career or a potential career. I still was, was, was a pipe dream. Um, and I came back to Australia. I was coaching, um, volunteer, um, in the north of Australia, where football is is the number three or four or five sport, there's Australian rules. There's cricket. There's rugby. There's rugby league, and then football is a is a very very poor cousin. And it felt um, very isolating. I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. I had this thirst for it and this desire to to do more um, and to learn more. Um, and I did a did the B license in Cambodia. So again, I'm. Uh, Taking any, you know, you really, when you're desperate, you'll do anything. So I was, I was always um, getting in trouble at whatever school I was at because I'd say to the principal or the head of school, you know, can I take two weeks off? I've got a coaching course. And they'd say no. And I was on this, I was on this red line all the time to, if you do this again, we're, you know, you won't work here anymore. So I said to the, I said to the head of school in, in, in Darwin, in Australia, give me leave without pay. I've worked there for five years. I said, give me one year. Let me go to Europe, get this out of my system. This coaching thing, maybe, maybe I'm useless. Let me go and just do it. And if it doesn't work, I come back and, you know, no one's lost anything. I can say I gave it a go. They said, no, if you go, you're done. So I had a very, my wife and I had a very serious sit down. I said, look, I just have to, I have to go. I have to, I have to know is this is this something that I can do or is it just a you know every guy in the pub said they could have done this and they could have done that and they had trials at West Ham and you know all the rest of it um so thankfully for her or for us she said yeah let's let's go she, she's a musician she's a pianist she had lived in Europe for a long time and she appreciated that the center of the football world is Europe so she said okay let, let's go um rented out the house, sold the car, quit the jobs and um, made our way to Germany. In recent episodes, we've talking, we're talking about like support pillars, right? And obviously you've got a fantastic support pillar in your wife because it's, it's a big decision to make, right? You're packing up and you're not just going 
a couple of hundred miles down the road, you're going thousands of miles to not even an English speaking country. Um, so why, why Germany obviously is a, a big culture of, of football and soccer. Um, I would just like to dial it back to obviously when you started coaching and you spoke about the skills you got from teaching, what were maybe one of the two big skills that you think are transferable from the teaching world to the coaching world? I think a huge one is just that uh, the planning and organization that that teaching gives you, you have to have a lesson plan. You have to know where you want to get to over a year or a, or a semester or over term or, and then you microcycle like a week. And then even that day, you've got to, you go in with a plan for the day. I've got, uh, you know, grade seven, grade eight, grade nine, where are we at in the year? And just that, that thought of, long-term and breaking it into medium and short-term and in the day. And then even within that lesson, that, uh, that set me up really well to have, to have a vision on, you know, you take on a team where we want to be at the end of the season, um, where we want to be by the, by the middle of the, you know, that, that planning and organization was, was crucial. And I think the communication, I was always, I wasn't a good communicator until I became a teacher. I, I was a very reluctant teacher. I was one of those, one of those students that finished another degree and didn't really know what to do and did the extra year as a teaching diploma and then became a teacher. But it was something that you have to learn the hard way, how to stand up in front of an audience and, and you, you're a salesperson as well, because not every day you feel like getting up and, and delivering a lesson, but you have to, you have to sell it to the kids. Some days you have to sell it to the players. You have to sell them a vision, sell them, uh, a session, sell them a you know a new a new system this week, or the way we're going to press against this opponent. And uh, I found those those were the two big things that that really helped me probably develop faster as a coach. I had those things already in in my back pocket, so to speak, from from that other profession. Yeah, and those two skills I think uh, somewhat some people would maybe undervalue them because you look at uh, say a new coach coming into it you would probably say to them, where do you think planning and communication comes on your list of importance as a new coach? And if they probably wouldn't put it, they'll probably talk about tactics and understanding the game. But yeah, you can have all of that. But if you can't communicate that to your team, yeah. your players, and if you can't plan what you're going to be doing and you're going week by week, you're going to struggle. Um, and I think we have a lot of, and we deal with a lot of new coaches, beginner coaches that are just getting in. That could be very young. And a lot of coaches want to go from A to B as quickly as they can. And like for yourself, you wanted to get into the coaching world, but you were willing to kind of sacrifice pay, time, like maybe your own personal achievements in terms of going on holidays and going here to focus on your career as a coach. So then going back to your journey, when you arrived in Germany, what was like your your next steps to get into coaching? Because obviously you were brand new to Germany. How did you kind of get into it? It was beyond difficult. So we we arrived in, in Germany in the summer of 2012. And a slight little backstory was was um, we, in international teaching, you, you go to these job fairs and it's all very hectic and crazy. And you, you have 10 interviews and you'll get an offer from Luxembourg and Saudi Arabia and Belize and here and there, and you'll. And if you sign the contract, it, it's done. And the year before, I'd signed a contract to go to Japan. Uh, and then 
I'd done a little bit more research and then backed out of the deal, which when you do that, you get blacklisted. So then me as a teacher in international schools, I was finished. No one would touch me. That's sort of an unwritten, unspoken rule. If someone backs out of a contract, you don't touch them. So I couldn't work in Germany as a teacher, which in a, in a certain way worked out well. It gave me time to, that I needed to, to do the legwork to get into coaching. Um, so we arrived in Germany. My German was year eight German, very poor. Guten Morgen, Guten Nacht, Danke. Um, no connections, holding up a, an Asian B license, which people did not acknowledge the, you know, it wasn't worth anything. Um, and even, uh, even age-wise, I think I was 30, 34, even people said, you're too old to even get started. These were the days of Nagelsmann and these yeah. guys coming through at 25. So even... As a, as a novice coach, I was all, already past it in, in a lot of people's eyes. So very simply, I remember, I've probably still got the diary somewhere. I had a map of uh, Southern Germany, Frankfurt in the middle, 50 kilometer radius, 100 kilometer radius, 150 kilometer radius. And I plotted out all the clubs, Eintracht Frankfurt, Darmstadt, uh, Kickers Offenbach, uh, and you go down Hoffenheim, Freiburg, Boom, boom, boom. So I started as close as possible. Didn't have a car. So yep. I was driving this, I was driving the school bus at that point, but not allowed to take it for private use, obviously. <laughs> um, so it was trains, trains and, uh, and buses. So I had, I had my very poor CV in English with a, with a useless B license from Asian Confederation. And I, I was, I was on the train, Darmstadt knock on the door, talk to some sporting coordinator. Here's my CV. I'm a coach looking for a job. I did this at least 150 times from, from the Bundesliga down to regional Liga. So fourth division, fifth division, sixth division, um, for nine months with zero return, not even a thank you. We're not even, we're not interested. Thanks for the CV. So nothing, not even my local ninth division pub team actually no i tell a lie the local pub team said you can come and assist us and we might give you 20 euro at the end of the month um and it was a and it was on one of these trips that i i saw a game happening i think it was a sunday morning so you could hear the crowd in off in the distance from the train station i just went and had a look and it was frankfurt it was the women's team in the in the women's bundesliga against Bayer leverkusen and I just paid my five euro and went in and just had a look. And the football was amazing. It, it blew my mind because I, I'd come from Australia where women's football wasn't, the level wasn't very good back in those days. And this football was, was phenomenal. And I knew nothing about it. I was quite ignorant to, to football in, in women's football in Germany. And I watched it and I, and then I just went back home and researched it. And these guys had just lost the Champions League final the summer before against Bayern Munich, I think, or Lyon. I said, oh, I'd never even contemplated women's football as, a, as an avenue here. So I sent off an email. I'm here. By this time, I'd, I'd, I'd evolved to the point where I'm not going to get in as a coach. So I thought, okay, I don't speak German. I've got a video camera. I've got sports code. I've got a MacBook. 
I'll reinvent myself as a video analyst. So I won't need to be with players. I won't need anything like that. So I sent an email to them and said, FFC Frankfurt, women's team. I'm a video analyst in Frankfurt. And sure enough, that was the only reply I got was the head coach at that time said, yeah, come and film the game and I'll tell you what to cut and you can cut it and give it to me. So that's, that's where that, that's where I got, I just wanted to get in somewhere. Um, and, but that took nine months of rejection to get so, this one. Yeah. With that, what I think 99 out of a hundred people probably would have quit right after that nine months of getting purely rejected. What was your, what was your, your maybe light bulb <clears throat> moment ago? You know what? I'm not quitting. I'm getting it. Um, probably just blind faith and stubbornness that I wasn't going to give up. Just, I, I, I think it was more also, I didn't want to go back to Australia in 12 months and say I, it didn't happen. I wanted to say I did something, even if I was the video analyst for Frankfurt women, that was something. But I needed, I couldn't go back empty handed. So it's, it's ego, it's pride, it's all those kind of things that, um, because I hadn't even had a point of reference to say, well, you coached and you failed. Like I hadn't even got to that, hadn't got in the door anywhere yet. So it was, yeah, just being, uh, yeah, like something that we say to the players, don't ever give up. So I thought, well, I need to practice what I preach here and I can't just give up after nine months, even though it was, was pretty dark, pretty dark times for me. Um, yeah, it was a tough time. Yeah, I'm sure. It is. And I think this is the inspiring part to uh, coaches listening to this of like, you are going to get rejections. Like yeah. it's just part of how this gig is, whether you've even, even at the, the top, top level, people are always going to reject you. And it's yeah. one of those not to take it personally and just to see it as a growth opportunity to keep going and go for the next step. Yeah. So then obviously yourself, you managed to get your foot in the door at Eintracht Frankfurt you then obviously progress from being an analysis. Obviously you, you were part of the women's team. How did that journey kind of unfold then to get you to that first team level and like become then the head coach? Um, by the end of that 2012, 13 season, I was uh, that, that coach, that head coach that had initially told me to, to come in and volunteer was fired the next day. And I waited for the next head coach to come in and I got on really well with him. After 11 games, he was fired and they had an interim coach for the last four games. So even at that point, I thought, oh, you're in. And then, oh, the new guy might bring his own analyst. And he said, no, 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 you can stay. And, you know, we, we can keep, we can keep working. And then the next season, um, uh, you might know Jack, uh, Colin Bell, he was uh, your assistant at Huddersfield for a little while with, uh, with yeah. Jan. Yeah, short term. Um, he took over at Frankfurt, and um, and I said to him, "Look, yes, I'm here as the video analyst, and I'll, I'll be your video analyst for the first team." But he said, "I, I said, I, I'm a coach, really." And fortunately, he's he's lived in Germany most of his life, but he's English, so we had a good connection from the start. And he said, "All right, look, what if we give you like the the third team? So in Germany, first team." second team, your reserves, and third team was effectively an under-20s in the fourth division in Germany. and said, okay, take that. We'll give you a German um, female assistant coach slash 
you know, joint coach. So that's how I, he just said, just take that and, 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 and run with that. And we, we won the league and then it became, uh, maybe this guy actually knows what he's doing and he, and he can coach. So the next year they said, well, you take the under 17s in the youth Bundesliga and we won that league as well. Um, so I, I mean, I don't take a lot of credit for it that I had very good players, had a good team. I just, I was learning a lot about how to, I mean, the German system in terms of player development and coach development, I think is, it's copped a lot of criticism lately and, you know, it's had some tough times, but the players come out of that system with, with such great football knowledge, game insight and tactical awareness that I know now that I've been to other countries that the German system is, is obviously world-class. Um, but anyway, I had success with the two teams that I had. And then Colin said, uh, yeah, come and be my number three. He had a number two. He said, come be the number three. You can keep learning. Um, and I did that for, well, about nine games. And then he said, I'm off to Norway. He said, I've recommended you take over as caretaker. I said, I, I can't do it. That's, you know, four months ago, I've, I've got the under 17s. So the girls are at school. They come four nights a week. We play, we train, you know, it was, it was just a different level. Taking over the, the current champions of Europe. We just beaten PSG in the final a few months before. And he said, be the caretaker. I said, yeah, I'm like, I can't do it. I'm not ready for that. Um, he said, no, just do it. He just said, let the handbrake off. He said, I've, I've, I've had them. I've had them on a tight leash for a long time. He said, just let them play and you'll have success. I said, oh, because at the end of the day, you never say no, because you never know when another chance is going to come. So I said, okay. Okay, I'll do it, do it for a game. And I remember thinking that when we spoke about the journey, uh, if I got to say I, I coached in the Bundesliga for, for one game, I would, have went, I would have gone back to Australia and said, success, women's Bundesliga, I coached the game and they got rid of me and I've done it. So the first game we won, second game we won. And they said, oh, it was one game before the winter break. And they said, I'll win this one. And, and you can have the job. And we lost 3-2. And then the whole the winter break, I remember just thinking, just give it to me or don't give it to me. This, this limbo was killing me. And they said, uh, keep going. Have one more game, Hoffenheim. We won it. And they said, okay, take them for the rest of the season. And um, we had a really good season. I think we, I, we won 10 of those 13 matches. Um, it, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal to think coming from Darwin and then within a within the space of a few years, I'm coaching Champions League, Bundesliga, DFB Pokal. Just, it's still, when I still tell the story, I still feels like I'm talking about somebody else. So, Just, so that was, yeah. um, you spoke there about kind of your apprehension of taking, taking the job. Um, and one thing that always... I think about when you see a caretaker manager go in is the players' reactions and how mm. you get the buy-in from the players, how you gain their trust. Obviously, they've just lost a, a head coach before you who they trusted a lot because they had a lot of success. Yeah. What was the players' reaction like and how were you able to kind of build that relationship and trust with them? Um, I was fortunate in the sense that 
I'd built a good relationship as the assistant, even over a short time. But the players had seen me around with the 17s and as their video analyst for the last two seasons before that. So I knew them, obviously not as not as well as, uh, you know, didn't have full trust, but they knew that I was, that I was a decent guy, um, that I was fair and that I would, I'd communicate pretty honestly. So I remember even the, the, the owner came in and said, Matt, you, it's your team now. Do you want to do a big speech? I said, I don't want to do a speech. I said, Let, I said let's just go out and train. I said, we don't, I don't need big pomp and ceremony. I said, look, let's just go out and train. We had a game in two days time. So it wasn't, it wasn't about me trying to sell a big idea. I said, look, I'm going to keep the things that work. I'm going to keep them the same. I say, you'll see little bits of, of the way I want to play. But I said, for the most part, th these were guys that had, they'd won Olympic gold, they'd won World Cups, they'd won Champions League, they'd won, they'd done it all. They were experienced. A lot of them were, were at the top of the game. So it was more about letting them do what they do best, not overcomplicating things. And when I look back now, um, the amount of information and the concepts that we have these days, even though it's not that long ago, I didn't have principles of play. I didn't have a game model. I didn't have a defensive transition. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. It was so rudimentary. Um, but the players, I just set them up. We don't have the ball, four, two, three, one, when, when we've got the ball. And you guys know the rotations. You guys, you guys know what to do if the, if the number six comes back between the two center halves and you, you push on and you tuck in. And it, it worked already. So it was more about Keeping the best, keeping the players fit, ticking over, having a bit of fun, making, the, keeping them engaged. Um, it wasn't about top level coaching um, because at that point I didn't have the tools for it. I was still in that. I still, I don't know. I mean, you have learner plates on you when you start yeah. with your car. I still had my learner. I still had my P plates, L plates on. I was still learning the game, so. Um, I didn't have the confidence and I didn't have the knowledge at that point to be able to offer too much anyway. It was more, um, I trust you guys to carry out this very basic game plan. Um, and, and thankfully they did it and, and it, and it worked. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you kept things simple, which I think is good because I see a lot of managers who, especially at the highest level of the game, who take over from a prior manager and there's drastic changes. They want to have their own philosophy or their own style into it. And it's one of those that we say to a lot of new coaches as well is you sometimes you can't tell the players exactly what you have to. You have to go to how they're doing it. And you've done it right there in terms of you've just gone to the players and say, we just need to carry on doing exactly what we've been doing. Yes, I'll implement it. But a question for you, was there any any part of your that journey right at the start where you're like, you know what? This is my chance to go and put all of my my uh, style onto how I want to play, or was it a case of nope? I'm going to let go of how I want to play and just continue how it's going. Honestly, at that stage, I didn't have a style. I'd, I'd come from an Australian system. We had we had uh, we had imported a Dutch technical director 
a Dutch curriculum, and we were we were given the folder and said, "This is how you play four three three. The wingers are on the touchline. This is how you train. You can choose from this warm up, this passing drill, this small side of game, this finishing exercise." So I come from uh, an environment where you, you didn't have a style; you, you were just imposed on you. And the style that was happening in Germany at the time was, I mean, we, we know what the Germans are like. Um, so I, I, I didn't, I, and as I've gone along, it's changed a lot. Doing our pro licensing from 2020 to 2022, we had to do a lot of work on, on our philosophy, our, our, a lot of internal work on ourselves. And even now to come now to Saudi Arabia, it's changed again because uh, there's only for me. And again, just that's, personal there's the top one two percent of coaches that have got the luxury to go into a club and have world-class class players and say i'm going to do this and you've just got to follow um you really my advice to the coaches at most levels would be know your players know what you've got pick a style pick a philosophy pick pick what's going to work with them because if i tried to do what i wanted to do in Frankfurt to do it in Sweden or China or Korea and now Saudi Arabia. One of the five, it will work and the other four, it's going to fall on its face. So, um, yeah, you, you've got to find ways to win. And that, and sometimes you have to, and again, it's, it's not very trendy to say that, but there's too many coaches I see play out from the back and lose silly goals that they don't need to lose because they're holding onto this philosophy. And then, the next thing that the job center looking for a job because they've been fired. If you can have a so, word with uh, Eric Ten Hag about my blessed <laughs> Man United, that would be great. With, but I, you're exactly right because I feel like there's a there's a popular way of playing, but that yeah. isn't always the right way of doing it. And it's about playing to win the game, especially at the senior level and yeah. even at somewhat an academy level. At the highest part of it is you're playing to win games and. If you're not able to play out from the back because of the pressure situation, then you play a little bit more direct. Like it doesn't have to always be the neat and tidy stuff that that wins you the games. And you look at a lot of managers try and do it, but they don't look at the personnel they have. And like for no. you, like you had you had the players there and like some very <laughs> successful players. And it's kind of saying, right, well, ladies, here's the tools, go and deliver. Like here's the trust, and you. Did you rely a lot on trusting the players to make the right decisions in the right moments rather than treating them almost like robots? Yeah, and I, I would, I, I had complete trust in them because I'd, I'd seen them do it at the top level for the national team and for Frankfurt in the Champions League. So they'd done it against the best. So I was never in the training to be saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. If for example, if if a team wanted to press us high with, with two strikers, if we had a goal kick, um, I knew that someone would come down and make it a 3v2 or a 4v2 and we'd find our way out. Or I knew that the goalkeeper would say, today I'm not feeling it, everyone up to the halfway line, I'm, I'm, I'm knocking it long, win the second ball and we play from there. So it was, um, they, had, they had such good good uh, knowledge of the game and, and and the game management. I never had to tell them we're one nil up, we tend to go full back stay. Do, they knew it all. So it was 
in a in a weird way it was an easy easy job to have as a first sort of professional yeah. gig because I had players that were all at the top of their game. Yeah, no, in, you found yourself obviously there, like getting into the that level in the Bundesliga, and then what then got you then from standing on the touchline in the Bundesliga to then standing at the grandest stage of them all at the World Cup with the with uh, Republic of Korea? Like, how did you transfer then from club <clears throat> football to international? How did that come about? Well, um, Colin Bell was was. Well, is my mentor and was the the coach in Frankfurt that brought me in as the, as his number three at that stage, um, and we stayed in touch. He went to Norway, then after I left Frankfurt, I went to Sweden. He went to Ireland. I we, we bounced around the world, but we always stayed in good touch. And uh, I was in China with the under fifteen uh, girls national team, and in a Korean restaurant with my wife in. Chengdu just before the COVID outbreak hit and uh, he called me and he said uh, Matt you want to come to Korea I've just got the national team job do you want to be the number two and within half a second I said yes I do um, it, it was an easy it was an easy decision to make to 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 work with him again and to to work with a national team um, it's uh, you'd you don't realize how special it is to represent a country, to to have the emotions of a nation, um, and to have that responsibility. But it's it, it's not a burden. It's such a such a privilege. Um, and then we went through a very, I mean, we went through a hard time with the girls, cultural cultural things like the hierarchy, the diet, the, the domestic league. But to qualify for the World Cup. And to beat a World Cup was, again, another one of those surreal things that I look at the photos now of me on a touchline at a World Cup in my home country that I'd left 10, 11 years before. And it's, it's, it's surreal. It's just, uh, it just blows my, it never fails to blow my mind. No, and like I dream of just attending one to watch as a fan, but let alone to be a coach on the sidelines. Was there a part of you during that World Cup where you've got, you've just reflected and gone, yeah, I remember those 150 knocking the doors in the Bundesliga trying to get a job, and now I'm standing at the World Cup. Like, wow, what a moment. It's, uh, in a strange way, no. Because even I can remember it in those, during those moments, you're always, you, your mind goes to the same things that your mind would go to when you guys are coaching. Uh, have I... Uh, have I got the set pieces on the whiteboard? Have I, have I filled in who's got a man mark who? Um, have, I got the, have I got the magnets ready to... Like, it's all very... It's the same. Yeah. Uh, the, the coaching as a, as, a, as a job doesn't really change. It's just the, the fields get nicer and the stadiums get bigger and the, the stakes get higher. Um, and it wasn't until after the very last game we played Germany and Brisbane had a draw, and uh, which which turned out it, it knocked Germany out. And, um, and I had my mother and father and my two best mates in the stand. And that, that's where it sort of hit me when it was all over. That you're at a World Cup, 40,000 people. And it all came together in a very, yeah, very emotional way. But to have the result that, that we didn't really 
you know, that we dreamed of that we could knock Germany out and get a point at the World Cup, even though we had a poor World Cup. Um, and then to turn into the crowd and to see your mum and dad who have been there since those, obviously, <laughs> those early days of yeah. refereeing, taking me to games at 7am in the morning and picking me up and you got to, it was, it was also, it was more for them to say, yeah, you've, you know, thank you for them that they'd played a big, big role in me getting to where I got to. Yeah, no, that, that's mm. fantastic. And you spoke about how, whether you're at Frankfurt or at the World Cup, like coaching stays the same, but between club football and international football, was there any adjustments you had to make to maybe how you delivered sessions or what you actually were working on? Because obviously club is full-time, you're there all the time, you're preparing for maybe a longer cycle, whereas maybe on a, the national level, it's such a short period at times. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest adjustments you had to make? Um, because I'm very curious to see, because I feel it takes two different types of coaches that can do both jobs. Some Some coaches out there can do both jobs, but some mm. are designed specifically for international football. Yeah. Um, on paper, it looks like an easier job in the sense that you have a FIFA window here, here's your 10 days, and then maybe a month or six weeks later, there's your next FIFA window. But for us, it was, not I wouldn't say non-stop, but it was busy because we'd have to sit down, okay, who are we playing in this window? You might have friendlies against USA. For example, we did that um, 2021. So you, you're going over to the US, you've got two games. So you're watching their last 20 games, you're pulling out the clips of that, you're watching their players play for their clubs, you're watching our players play for their clubs, you're looking at everything's bespoke in the sense that this window, we have to break it. You're talking about minutes here. You, your sessions, you can, you've got to get, you can't waste a minute. So we, we'd look at what kind of exercises we'd need the sequencing of that, the periodization of that, even within the exercises, getting it as rock solid in terms of organization, time management, where are the goals going to go? Where's the mini goals? The ball station will be here. Where are the bibs going to be? Then we'd go through, once that was done, then animate everything. So we'd sort of front load that we had all the animations for every exercise already prepared, have it checked have translations in Korean, subtitles, um, like a lot of work to go into what you might think is another coach in a club would just have it on a piece of paper. I'm going to do a bit of a rondo, a bit of a passing, but, you know, very simple. Yeah. You'd have to, because you just knew we don't have time. On top of that, you have to prioritize with a club in a week or a seven day cycle with 34 games or, 28 games, whatever you've got, you've got time. But with a national team, a lot of times we'd get to match day minus two or one and you, you'd really, you know, we'd know we haven't done throw-ins and you just go, well, we don't have time. We've got to get the back four ready. We've got to get the transition sorted. We've got to do the free kicks. And you just get to that point where you go, well, we maybe have to use, we got to the point where we'd call the, you know, a video coaching session where the players are knackered or they have to recover, but that video session became a training session because things you'd have to outline. You can't physically do it. It might be with the cones on the grass after a session, or it might be in the video room afterwards, but um, 
yeah, the prioritization and the time management tightened everything up. That was the biggest thing that I could feel going into a national team. Um, again, some of the drills, a lot of the stuff is the same, but it's the way you deliver it. And to take the time to have, we'd have maybe 20, 30 minutes before each training session, show the animation, explain everything. Here's the teams, here's your bibs. Um, you go from here to here to here to here. Uh, and you just got, you got, you got it done. Um, so that's, and that was a hard thing to come back to, to club land where I am now to just feel that I wanted to keep that kind of intensity because I really loved it, that everything was, was very tight. Um, and then to come here, it was, uh, it was, I felt frustration that, that I'd lost that, um, or that the players had never experienced that here. Um, and it, it, it caused some friction because I wanted things very, to flow very nicely and to not waste time. And they've come from a different culture where if we train for three hours, it's okay. And if we take five minutes for a water break, it's okay. So um, definitely I would agree that different coaches um, are, are suited to national teams or club, club football. So I'm very, again, very lucky, very privileged that I've had experience in both. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because when, when I was in the national team environment, after a, a year or two, I craved the day-to-day -day, and then you get into day-to-day -day and you're like, <laughs> I'd love 10 days off just to, to recharge. So yeah, the grass isn't always green on the other side. It's interesting you say that because obviously you said at the start, going from your teaching background into coaching, your two biggest skills that you're taking on is obviously the planning and the communication. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're, you're looking at when you go into the national team. Um, mm. And I, I love how you spoke there about often like prioritizing certain parts. Like I'm looking at any grassroots coaches that are listening to this who might get one session a week, two sessions a week. Yeah, it would be great to work on set pieces, but that's taken out an hour of your week that you want kids touching a ball and stuff like that. So yeah. I think the biggest piece of advice that I'm taking from what you've just said there is really mapping out what you want to achieve and prioritizing, right, this session has to be this and the importance of writing it down and then being able to communicate it to the players. But it seems like you've you've been involved in so many cultures, obviously in Australia, then Germany, you had a brief spell obviously in Sweden and then obviously in Asia with the national team. And now you're in Saudi Arabia. So your your passport must be coming to uh to be a hundred percent poor at the moment. But so yeah. what kind of took you then from being at the World Cup to now being in Saudi Arabia? Um well, during the World Cup, I had a an offer from Korea to to extend until the end of this year, until the end of twenty four, and um, it would have been very easy to just sign that and and carry on. Um, but possibly, as you can gather, I I struggle in a comfort zone. I need to be stretched. Um, I need to. Yeah, I think it makes me a better coach and a better person to always be. Um, maybe I just get bored easily. Not not to say I was bored, but I need something. You new. need the so next I, challenge, the next fix, I the need next, the next bite. challenge. And because I can remember coming into that that Korean job, and and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I can be a number two in international level. Like I, it was an unknown. Maybe I'm 
not cut out for it. Maybe I can't handle the pressure or the the intensity or the the scrutiny. So it was one of those, like everything when I left Australia, do I can I make it? Can I do it in Germany? So that was like, okay, yes, you did. Then it was like, well, can I can I be a number two at international level in women's football? Okay. I felt by the time we got to the World Cup, I was very good at my job. I'd learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. I'd been well mentored. I'd been, and I'd developed. And I thought, okay, I, I'm confident now. I'm a very good number two. Um, and then after ten, let's say ten years in women's football, the next big unknown was men's football, because it, it wasn't a conscious decision to go into women's football. It I fell into it. I I enjoy it, um, and I had a good, I had a good run. In, in inverted commas. So the next big thing was, okay, men's football. And then while we're at it, Middle East, Arabic, Islam, let's, let's really go crazy. Um, and it, it was a strange circumstance that um, somebody, some connection on LinkedIn had forwarded me uh, a vacancy. Women's head coach slash technical director, Saudi Arabia. So okay, at that point, I was thinking about men's football, but this was a women's football position. So I sent my CV, had an interview, and they got through the interview, went very well. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe men's football in another year or two after after women's football in Saudi Arabia. And I said, look, would you would you be interested in the, the academy with the, the boys under 19s? I said, yeah, sure. I didn't really think too much about it. So yeah, let, let's do it. That maybe save one or two years and check out men's football straight away. And I said, okay, well, we need you here now. So this was this was the day of the World Cup game against Germany. Wow. So uh, my wife was waiting back in Korea for me for finish the World Cup. Let's take a holiday. We'll enjoy our time. Haven't seen you for a while. Because uh, she lives in a different country, she lives in France, and I said I'll change of plans. I said I start packing up all the boxes. I've got to be in Saudi Arabia in the next five days. So all happened very quickly. That's why I haven't even had time to really process the World Cup because within three days of getting back to Korea, I was on the first flight to Dammam, Saudi Arabia. Wow, what a journey that has been. Like <laughs> and I think it just shows the whirlwind of the life of a coach. Like you could you never know what the next week, the next month, the next year might bring. So now yeah. obviously you find yourself coaching in Saudi Arabia within the male game. Um what have you seen being the biggest difference, probably I'm assuming then in, in culture, probably from Europe, where you yeah. start in Australia to Europe and now obviously in uh Saudi Arabia, like what's really been some of the the challenges you face so far. Well, to go back into that, that, those two points we spoke about in terms of teaching and coaching, so planning and organization and communication. So uh, I remember getting here very early on and got a spreadsheet out to try and look at our weekly timetable. And the first thing you have to do is put in prayer time. So at that point in the summer, it was first prayer was maybe 3.30 in the morning, then a 6 a.m., 12, 3 and 7. So you've got five prayers. 
which is something I've never had to deal with before. So then you have to talk to a lot of people and communicate. How does it work with prayer time? How do we manage the heat? Um, and what what happened here, which which was a, a again, I it didn't do enough background work. It's a nocturnal society, so I had the boys. They would stay awake until three a.m. and pray, then go back to sleep, and maybe wake up at twelve, eat lunch, maybe sleep again pray and then come to training or they'd train they'd, they'd pray just before the training session started so you're dealing with a you know in europe circadian rhythm sports science sleep for recovery uh diet all these kind of things we we have nailed down and then you come here and it everything got flipped on its head um so now in the pre-season which was very short i was doing the, the morning session at 4 a.m wow trying to and the players again talking with the players they said it's better for us just to pray and come to training or we, yeah but they can pray at training so they'd all you turn the floodlights on at three um they'd pray and then we train and some of the best sessions we had were at four in the morning so were they i'm assuming they were obviously used to to training that early but for yourself that must be that must have been hard to adjust your body right because just as a on the human element, like doing that and ha having the cognitive skills that early in the morning to what is normal maybe to us. Yeah. How did you find training that early in terms of like a, a physical load? Were the players able to roll straight into it, or was it? Did it take time for the players to get a hundred percent going? So then, it, they were the, they were great sessions, and I was shocked. But then, when you understand more about the way they live they're very sharp because for them it's i would equate it to a 7 p.m session for us so we've had the day um you've maybe had a uh, they would they they wouldn't eat dinner till one or two in the morning maybe maybe 12 or one they stay awake drink some tea so they're it's just of what we think so it was was difficult for me but i was running on adrenaline and just the novelty of you know saying putting the cones out at 3 45 in the morning saying this is a good story I'll, this will be a good chapter in my book one day i said uh, so we were doing 4 a.m 4 p.m was our double session in, in pre-season um and was this would this be also the same at say like a first team level as well so obviously Saudi, the Saudi Pro League at the moment is a hot commodity in, in the media. Would the, the first team level be doing a similar pattern to this? I don't think you'd get Ronaldo and Benzema getting up at, uh, <laughs> at 3 a.m. I was um, going to say. No, no. First team more in line with European okay. methodology. So I think they would, for now, um, they might be in, in the gym in the morning and doing a normal maybe at 3 p.m., 4 p.m. on the pitch. Now it's winter. The temperature's very nice. Uh, summertime, when uh, we had Robbie Fowler here, was the head coach at the start of the season, training at 7 p.m., and maybe they were doing some gym from 3 p.m. So, um, yeah, the Pro League, th this is academy level where they're, 
and that was again me. I, I didn't have to do four AM sessions, but I felt I needed to get a good preseason into the boys, which meant double sessions, and that was the only only option. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely an interesting one to look into, and we're seeing more and more not only players but coaches from all around the world, especially Europe. So is Saudi Arabia, in terms of a development point of view, trying to take on snippets from your Spains, your Germanys, your England, your Italys? Like, how are they looking at youth development? Win. <laughs> it's just win by any means. So that was the biggest shock for me because... Um, Again, that was that was a it was a new thing for me too. Men's football, academy football. I'd never worked in an academy before, so I was really looking forward to working with players in an individual sense to develop them for the first team. Um, and that was that was the big challenge I was looking forward to. And then I, after losing the first two games, the question was, well, why aren't you winning? I said, well, this is, we, I thought I was here to develop players. I was producing players for the first team, which is the metric I was judging my work on. I said, no, well, you just have to win. Uh, and then I, I have spoken with other foreign coaches in the other clubs in the, in the Saudi, in the pro league under 19s. And they said the same thing. They said, it's, it's, um, it's, it's results-based. They're not, not at the point where it's about developing the next generation or because in a sense, I, in, in a certain sense, I can understand because if you play Al-Hilal or you play Etihad or these, these big clubs, those youth players, they're not going to make the first team because we took one guy from, from Hilal, uh, no, one guy from Etihad, uh, you know, Benzema is in his position. So he, he knows he's not going to play first team for a while. So it's just come to 19s and, and, and let's win. Um, which for me personally was disappointing because I had the feeling, well, I could have gone to a, to a first team somewhere where winning is the metric that you're judged by. So uh, the culture is the football. It's a solid football culture in the sense that the clubs have been around a long time. This this incarnation of the league with the, the, the money that's come in is quite new, but the football culture is very strong. Um, but in terms of youth development, I think they need, they need more time and more expertise to come in and say, let's just ease off on the results for now. No one's really checking the under 17 tables who's coming first or eighth or 15th. Let's get a, let's get a production line of good quality players. Um, but I think that that will take longer than people think. Yeah, I think that's going to take a while, but I think it's a necessary kind of long-term objective that they, they need to have to just to progress football in that part of the world generally, in turn, in especially their, their national team too, right? Um, yeah. One thing that's kind of struck me going all the way back from the beginning of your journey to now and, and the step-by, and there's been a lot of steps on the way, but, um, you know, you've been very honest, I think, about like, you know, the nine-month period where you were rejected by clubs and, and having to go through that struggle, um, being very honest about other challenges that you've had along your way. Um, so I, my question, I guess, is, is that something that you consciously try to be 
um, or is it just something that's come natural? Because I think it, it sounds like that's helped you along the way of um, acquiring new skills and new opportunities as well. Um, I think part of it is being Australian. I don't. I mean, Ange is the is the flavour of the month, we, and rightly so. But you can see he's he's a straight talker. He's mm. if it's not good, it's not good. If they, you know, he, he he'll tell it how it is. And and I mean, his journey's phenomenal. But he's always been honest, and I think that's. My wife will tell me you Aussies are just too too simple and too honest. And I think it probably it has its it has its benefits, it has its drawbacks. Um, but if if I'm going to be an honest if I'm going to learn, I can't. I have to be really self-aware. So I every like I say everywhere I go, I feel that imposter syndrome, and I have to get over that. I have to overcome that everywhere. But I think as time goes on. Um, I hope it gets less and less, but um, I think it's the only way that, that people can develop properly. Other other people have blind spots because I've seen it. I mean, I've, I've, in my opinion, I've worked with much better coaches than me and I look at where they are now and they, they're out of the game or they they haven't progressed because they, they maybe didn't self-reflect enough. They didn't. They weren't honest enough with themselves or with their players. And eventually, you get found out. So, um, and this is, yeah, an but, honest uh, Aussie. Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's really interesting because I think it's given you kind of that growth mindset and made you put yourself in positions where you are challenged and where you are kind of, you know, I think sometimes people look at the best coaches and they think they that they just are able to do it right like the first time they ever coached the practice it was perfect and it and that's yeah. just how they've always been and, and it's not the case and I think you know people have to understand that on their coaching journey too that there's a starting point and then there's where people are now and then there's where people yeah. can kind of progress further um you touched on kind of being a straight up Aussie um has that caused any issues or has that been a benefit when you've gone into these other cultures um it was a it was a big help in say germany and sweden where they're a little you know being direct is is good um and that probably because in australia we have a we have a saying about you know we beat around the bush which means you you talk talk the long way around but uh the germans and the swedes appreciated the honesty and and the dialogue was was always good because you could say what you what you thought. Um, the Asian cultures are different. Asian cultures, you have to be a little bit more uh, more political, more sensitive, more culturally aware. You you have to yeah have to come at things from a, a slightly different angle. So I had to sort of temper that in those countries. And then I found here, maybe even more so, uh, the, the culture here is very much a brotherhood and family. And um, it's very warm, but also quite superficial. Mm. So you have to, uh, I, I do a lot of observing. You come into a new place, keep your mouth 
shut, observe, see how people operate, see how people um, interact with each other. So you have to be here. I find you have to be a little bit more. Yeah, you have to have to temper the way you speak to people and maybe the honest way, the direct way can can bring up a lot of walls very quickly. So it's, it's fascinating. A lot of human psychology needs to be studied. And you have to, that's why I say a lot of coaching now is is emotional intelligence. It's um, reading people, it's finding out what people, how they respond best. And, and you're trying to bring them along uh, on your journey, like on your journey as, as to your vision as to football. So it's, uh, it's complex, very complex. Oh, indeed. And like I said, at the start, your journey has been fantastic and there's there's a long way to go as well. There's more and more on this journey. And I think we could probably speak for another couple of hours just on football and football and talking about everything it is. And I think maybe we can even maybe do a part two to this where we really delve into the youth development of it. But just kind of to, to wrap up this episode, because you've had so much experience in different cultures, different continents, to the listener that's wanting to be in, uh, let's say, the highest level coach that they can get to, what is your maybe one piece of advice to give to a coach out there? And I've put uh, you on the spot here as well. Yeah, you really have. Um, find a good mentor. Uh Listen, be humble, um, and football's got a great way of knocking you down when you get ahead of yourself. So always keep your feet on the ground. Um, but I, I've I've said to a few people um, that have said to me when I said find a mentor, they say, "Oh, it's really hard." And I said, "You'd be surprised the number of people that have been at the top of the game." Um, I've, sp I've spoken to a lot of people, ex-internationals, ex-Premier League players, and they say, nobody, nobody asked me what it was like. Nobody asked me for guidance. I said, there's, pe there's people out there that you'd probably be surprised that would help a young coach and that would give you some brilliant advice. That's why I say, for me, the turning point in my life was, was meeting Colin Bell and to have him as a mentor still um uh, is it, it's it's worth its weight in gold because you need somebody even just to just to say oh i'm thinking of doing a session about this and i'm going to do xyz and they say oh have you thought about doing z at the start just something very simple and you see it work and you feedback and you say that actually that was that, that worked and all those little incremental improvements you're making on yourself and on your coaching they add up, but you, you can't, you can't get them. This is a, a big, um, a big issue I have with, with social media. We did a lot of interviews for Academy coaches when, when I first arrived here and one question as a, as a as end, end of the interview kind of question was what's the last book you've read or where do you get your coaching ideas from? And every coach was Instagram, uh, TikTok. They get all their info from, from, from there. And if you're going to improve as a coach, you have to make sure that the, the, you're not just taking a rondo from Manchester city because Pep's done it. And you think, well, I'll do that with my under 12s. Um, 
And I think too many coaches think like that. Well, they just they'll just copy and paste. And um, yeah, but you need you need a sounding board for someone to say, well, yeah, Pep did it eight meters by eight or eight yards by eight yards with a five v two. Yeah, but you've got under twelves. Does it need to be a little bit bigger? Do you need to have something where some mini goals for a transition? If you know, so find good people to talk with. Um, yeah, but the humility is a big thing for me. Too many. I've been too many places with too many coaches where they they look down their nose. I've, I've had it everywhere I've been that you go to a certain club or a certain FA and they they all think they're they're too good for the the place. And next thing you know, in two or three years, they're out of a job. So it's um, yeah, be humble and listen and get a good mentor would be my three. Even though you asked me just for one. No, I think I think they all. Uh... They all connect and that's some great advice and I've taken a lot from this episode so I'm really thankful for your time and appreciate you coming on um, but before we do wrap up this episode obviously I might need I might need a little bit of your expertise on this trivia question if you, if you thought of any players but I'll start off Jack if you could just remind the listeners of your question of the week Yeah so in the Premier League there's only six clubs that have um, players from the Asian continent Two countries are leading the way: Japan and South Korea. Can you can you name uh, the three Japanese players and the three players from Republic of Korea currently playing in the Premier League? Okay, so the Japanese ones were the ones that I got straight away. So mm-hmm. Endo at Liverpool, correct. Matoma, Brighton, correct. And Tommy Asu, correct. Well so done. Then the South Korea one, I got two. Uh, Sun at Tottenham. Correct. And then the Wolves striker. Mm-hmm. Uh, Huang Li Chan. Huang He Chan. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, that is as far as my list got to me. Uh, a defender at Brentford. And where's he from? Uh, Republic of Korea. <laughs> Not sure. Go on. It's Kim Ji Soo. Yeah, no Jisoo. way I was going to get that one. I will give you a lot of credit there. I think five out of six is pretty good on that one. Yeah, I'll take the credit. I'll take the credit. But uh, no, Jack, any last words from you before we close out? No, I think very insightful. Again, another um, podcast where I think for the coaches that listens, I know there's a lot of coaches out there who listen to us, will take a lot from this. And I think also one that um, uh, it maybe inspires people to kind of self-reflect a little bit about their their own journey so far and what they've learned and what they can do and what they can learn from it so far yeah so Matt thank you very much again and uh, we bid everyone a farewell 